This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Madeline Jenner coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. It's the case that's gripped the nation and caused international headlines. Now, an Australian woman suspected of serving a beef wellington which contained poisonous mushrooms. Police have been searching Erin Patterson's home in the small town of Leongatha, southeast of Melbourne, from early today. This week, police charged Erin Patterson, the woman at the centre of the alleged mushroom poisoning case, with murder. The 49-year-old hosted a lunch at her home in regional Victoria back in July. Beef Wellington with mushrooms was on the menu. But three of the guests later died, her ex-in-laws Gail and Don Patterson and Gail Patterson's sister Heather Wilkinson. Heather Wilkinson's husband, Ian Wilkinson, recovered after seven weeks in hospital. Police allege the three lunch guests died from mushroom poisoning and they've spoken about the intense level of interest in the case. This investigation has been subject to incredibly intense levels of public scrutiny and curiosity. I cannot think of another investigation that has generated this level of media and public interest, not only here in Victoria, but also nationally and internationally. Detective Inspector Dean Thomas speaking on Thursday. Erin Patterson has always maintained that she did not intentionally poison her guests. Rachel Baxendale has been following the story for The Australian. So Erin Patterson, uh, who's a 49-year-old mother of two, she's from Leangatha in South Gippsland, appeared in court on Friday morning. She's been charged with three counts of murder and five counts of attempted murder. And those, those three counts of attempted murder relate to a lunch which she cooked on the 29th of July, a beef wellington dish which she cooked that day and was served to her in-laws, Gail and Don Patterson, who were both 70, Gail's sister, Heather Wilkinson, who was 66, uh, and also Heather's husband, Ian Wilkinson, who, who is 69, and he's, along with Erin, he's the surviving member of that lunch because Gail and Don Patterson and Heather Wilkinson passed away in the days following that lunch in early August. And Ian spent many weeks in the Austin Hospital in Melbourne. He was in a coma. He was in ICU. He needed a liver transplant. And it was only last month that he got out of hospital and he's, he's really still recovering. So we've got three charges of murder relating to the Pattersons and Heather Wilkinson. And then there are also five counts of attempted murder Two of those counts relate to the July 29 lunch. One of them relates to to Ian Wilkinson, who, of course, survived. And then there's another count that I understand actually relates to Erin Patterson's former husband, Simon, uh, who's, of course, the son of Gail and Don. And then there are another three counts of attempted murder, so five counts of attempted murder altogether, And those remaining three counts of attempted murder relate to incidents in 2021 and 2022 where it's alleged that Erin Patterson attempted to poison her former husband, Simon. These charges follow an extensive police search of her house. What do we know about what was found? 
So there was ex- an extensive police search on Thursday morning of Erin Patterson's house. This isn't the first time that police have been there, but on Thursday morning, Erin Patterson was arrested at her house in Lee and Gather in Gippsland South. The AFP were actually there alongside Victoria Police with technology detector dogs. And they were at the house until around 2pm, so for quite some hours. Uh, They went through her car, they went through the house extensively. At one stage they were pulling parts of the car apart. And these dogs usually look for things like SIM cards from mobile phones, parts of computers, USB sticks, that kind of thing. We actually heard in court on Friday morning that police think they're going to require about 20 weeks to the prosecution to get their case ready. You've been in Wonthaggy this week. What's been the response from the community to these charges? I have. So I spent a very long time outside the Wonthaggy police station on Thursday just waiting. The media knew that Erin Patterson was likely to be brought to the Wonthaggy police station uh, which is about a half-hour drive from her house in Lee and Gatha where the search was. And she was brought there at about 2.30 on Thursday afternoon. And I suppose it's important to point out that there are a few different communities that are involved in this saga, I suppose. Um, there's, of course, the community of Lee and Gatha where Erin Patterson lives. There's also the community of Corumburra where the Pattersons and the Wilkinsons lived, which is about a 15-minute drive. And, and I suppose in Wonthaggy, the feeling from locals was more a kind of curiosity about this huge media presence outside the, the police station in what's a relatively small town. Uh, so, you know, people kind of driving past and and yelling things, whereas my understanding is that the feeling in, in Corumburra in particular, where the Pattersons and the Wilkinsons were from, is much more one of embracing the families uh, of of those those people and and of wanting to protect them, I suppose, from the worldwide media attention that this story has garnered. You mentioned that there was plenty of media attention there this week, but we've also seen international attention. What do you think it is about this case that has people so fascinated? I think it's just a, it's such a strange turn of events. I remember my colleague, John Ferguson, was actually the person who broke this story on a quiet day, a Saturday, where he sent through a story, a contact of his had told him that there was this bizarre case in Gippsland that police suspected could have been a deliberate poisoning. At that stage, they weren't sure whether it was accidental or or whether they would go on to allege that it was deliberate as they have now with these charges against Aaron Patterson. But even at that stage, it was just such a strange turn of events that I think has kind of captured people's imagination and and so many unanswered questions. Rachel Baxendale, a journalist with The Australian. And the prosecution has been given until next March to file their brief of evidence with Erin Patterson due back in court next May. A small number of seriously injured Palestinians and foreign nationals were allowed to leave Gaza this week. Among them, a group of Australians who could make it to the Rafah crossing between Gaza and Egypt. 
I'm glad that I'm leaving today, but I'm, I'm very sad at all at the same, same time because I'm leaving my family behind in a very, very scary situation. But the Israeli Prime Minister says he is pressing on with the war, despite international calls for a ceasefire or some kind of humanitarian pause. The ground action actually creates the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility of getting our hostages out because Hamas will not do it unless they're under pressure. They simply will not do it. They only do it under pressure. This creates pressure. The situation in Gaza itself is bleak. Israeli forces have moved into parts of Gaza City and the bombardment from the air is continuing too. I'd say the biggest change is we've gone from sporadic Israeli raids into Gaza, in and out operations on a small scale, to what is effectively an invasion of northern Gaza. Shushank Joshi is the defence editor at The Economist. And while the fighting has been intense, it hasn't been the complete ground invasion that some expected in the wake of the horrific Hamas attack on October 7. So this more staged approach, bit by bit, is is designed, I think, to try to keep the operation at a lower level of intensity, to try to keep casualties on both sides down. And also, I think, to allow for a longer campaign. Had they committed multiple divisions to Gaza straight away, this would have had to have been a shorter campaign. Um, the last wars in Gaza on the ground have been about two weeks. This sort of more gradual operation on the ground means that the Israelis can keep it going for a little bit longer, I would imagine, both because of the natural uh, military resources they have and because of limitations in international support and and diplomatic pressure. And they're talking about an operation that will last for months, perhaps up to a year. I still find that difficult to to believe given the diplomatic pressures they're already facing. I think this is going to be a longer campaign than those previous ones. And if they are essentially encircling Gaza, what does that mean for the civilian population? Well, the Palestinian health ministry says, I think, that over 8,000 Palestinian civilians have died, of which a pretty sizable numbers of children, given the demography of Gaza. We've seen heavy, a very heavy toll, for example, on UN workers. And Gaza is a densely packed urban area. Civilian casualties are always high in such conflicts. But what I think we're seeing in Gaza is an Israeli uh, airstrike campaign that is more intense than some comparable ones we've seen, for instance, from the United States and its allies in Iraqi cities to evict Islamic State. And additionally, we're seeing a territory that in which it's significantly more difficult to get out. We do have now, you know, a slightly open border crossing to Egypt. We've seen some injured people evacuate, some foreign nationals get out from the Rafah crossing in the south. But by and large, there are fewer safe places in Gaza for civilians to get away to than there were for, for example, Iraqi civilians in the city of Mosul in 2017, when the US and its, its ground force allies and the Kurds and the Iraqis assaulted that city. We've heard a lot about the intelligence failure that meant that Israel was caught off guard with the initial attack on October 7. Is there any confidence that Israeli intelligence is better when it comes to the targets it's trying to hit in Gaza now? I think that's a great question because Israeli intelligence has very good coverage of Gaza, but they were clearly fooled on October 7th. And that's partly because they may have relied overwhelmingly on electronic and technological means of surveillance. Uh, tapping the phone networks, tapping the internet cables and, and, and monitoring internet traffic, looking at signs of movement from cameras and sensors. And those things are useful, but they only tell you so much. 
And what we saw was that Hamas mounted a very successful deception campaign using, for instance, fixed phone cables, old-fashioned phone cables inside its tunnels, which the Israelis may not have had access to. Um, and presumably they used you know, small groups to plan this in word of mouth and face-to-face. So a great deal hinges on human intelligence, what intelligence practitioners call human, which is to say a, a good old-fashioned agent that you, a spy agency recruits. Um, and it's safe to say, judging from October 7th, that the Shin Bet, which is Israel's domestic intelligence service, which has responsibility for Gaza, clearly did not have adequate human sources inside Hamas. And what we saw, for example, to give you another example from the US campaign in Iraq, in a city like Raqqa, where you didn't have great sources on the ground because you didn't have US troops on the ground, you were relying on airstrikes and and aerial surveillance, is that it was very difficult to get the intelligence you needed, to get local intelligence to say, look, this Hamas fighter is in this house. This factory is making weapons, but there's there's 400 civilians next to it, so be careful. Or this building is a weapon site, but the walls are very thin and it could collapse taking down the hospital next door or something like that. So that lack of human intelligence, I think, is going to be a huge constraint on Israel. And we have seen how militaries that try to wage these wars without that human intelligence uh, really struggle and the civilian toll tends to be higher in those circumstances. Well, this week we saw Gaza's largest refugee camp hit by an Israeli airstrike and the military says it was targeting a Hamas commander. But how does the protection of civilian life fit into Israel's strategy when you have so many people in such a small amount of space? Well, armies are obliged to discriminate between civilians and non-civilians. That doesn't mean they cannot kill civilians by accident if their aim is a military target, but they must weigh the military advantage of an attack and that incidental harm to civilians against the uh, anticipated military advantage they will gain by conducting it. So this is a subjective calculation. Clearly, if you were going after one single commander and you killed 500 civilians, it would be extremely difficult to legally or indeed ethically to justify that kind of that kind of act. But I think it's worth saying that there are different views on this, and some people will say the Israeli defense forces, some experts I've spoken to say, look, these these guys have legions of lawyers. They are very, very good at assessing these things. But on the other hand, um, a lot of experts in civilian harm I spoke to a few days ago said to me, actually, the way that an army thinks about the population it's fighting amongst makes a difference. And in Mosul, the Iraqi political leadership and the Iraqi generals placed a huge priority on civilians who they saw as their people. What we see today is a situation in which the IDF perhaps is operating under some different assumptions. I think that's safe to say. You know, I mean, I, I can see, for instance, Israeli officials in some cases referring to um, Hamas as ISIS, which gives them sort of perhaps, you know, uh, more of a, a zealous approach. Um, I saw a quote from an IDF general saying the other day, a former deputy commander of the IDF's Gaza division, when our soldiers are maneuvering with 50 airplanes overhead, we're destroying anything that moves. That kind of thing is not compatible with international law. So I'm wary of any sweeping conclusions, but I think that this campaign is going to be more harmful to civilians than many of the other previous ones we have seen. And some of that is down to the IDF's more aggressive tactics, whether they are legal or not. I think aggressive tactics is is a a fair assessment. A drawn out war is complicated for lots of reasons. We've seen the UN call for a ceasefire and last weekend, Australia was among countries who abstained on that vote. But surely the longer the fighting goes on and the more lives that are lost, the more international support for this conflict starts to wane. 
It will. I think we have seen Joe Biden just now call also for humanitarian pauses, which previously the Americans were not doing. Um, the European Union had called for a humanitarian pause. That's distinct from a ceasefire because they see it as a, a lull in the fighting after which it resumes rather than a, a full-scale halt to the fighting. But look, um, you already have, I think, you're nearing the civilian death toll in Gaza that was equal to the number of civilians killed in Mosul over a nine-month period. And this has occurred in less than a month or almost in, 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 in just under a month. So that is, I think, going to cause severe problems for the Israelis. And it is also the case that they have to think about the day after this war. They have to think about even if they succeed in toppling Hamas, who's going to run Gaza? Who's going to underwrite Gaza's reconstruction? And they know the Arab states will play a big role in that, particularly the Gulf states, but also Egypt. And a campaign that goes on like this, which is already causing mounting opposition in the Arab world, that's going to make it harder for them to pick up that Arab cooperation. So I would be surprised if the Israelis can keep up this kind of operation for as long as they say they want to. I think they will face growing pressure for a ceasefire at some point in the coming weeks. Defence editor at The Economist, Shushank Joshi. For the first time in seven years, an Australian leader is headed to China this weekend. The cooperation and engagement between our two countries is always improved when there is dialogue, when there's discussion. That's how you get mutual agreement, mutual respect and advance the interests of both our nations. And I thank President Xi uh, for the invitation. It follows years of tense relations and a difficult trade relationship, particularly after the former government called for an investigation into the origins of COVID-19. This week also marks 50 years since the first visit to China by an Australian PM. That's the sound of thousands of Chinese children here at Peking Airport this afternoon saying goodbye to Prime Minister Whitlam and the Australian party travelling with them. But both Australia and China are very different places now. In the last month, we've seen the relationship improve with the release of Australian journalist Chung Lei and the dropping of trade tariffs. But there are still plenty of contentious issues, including Taiwan, the South China Sea and human rights. So what's on the agenda for the talks? Dr Darren Lim is a senior lecturer in international relations at the Australian National University. That's a great question, because if you had asked me this question a month ago, I would have listed various agenda items that we have actually seen resolved in the past month. At the top of that list was the return of the journalist Chung Lei. We've also seen an agreement from the Chinese side to review its tariffs on wine, with an expectation that next year the wine industry will open up. And we've seen from the Chinese side, Australia agreeing not to cancel the lease on the Darwin port and potentially signalling a relaxation of another anti-dumping duty on wind towers. So these were the things we expected to be on the agenda for this week. And so it's actually not clear what big ticket items might be up for discussion. Of course, from the Australian side, there is the continued case of Dr Yang Heng Jun, another Australian citizen who is in Chinese detention. And on the Chinese side, we know they have a continued interest in gaining greater access to the Australian market in terms of foreign investment. So they want to be able to invest money in Australian companies, especially in the mineral sector. On other areas, look, there's long been discussion of cooperation in green technology and climate change, but what that might look like in terms of a concrete outcome, I actually don't know. 
You mentioned the Australian writer Yang Hengjun, and he has been in detention in China. Ahead of this visit, uh, his supporters have been calling for the Australian government to do more and obviously calling for his release. Do you think that is likely or will it be on the agenda in China? Look, there is evidence pointing both ways. The argument for hope is that his formal sentencing has been continually delayed. I think it's been delayed seven times, and for comparison, Chung Lei's was delayed five times. And what delay means is that the Chinese system is waiting for signals from the top about whether or not some kind of deal could be made. Because if it was a straight up and down application of the rule of law, he would be sentenced for however many years appropriate for his crime. But then, of course, once that was done, there'd be no scope to release him early. So the the fact that we don't have a sentence yet seems to suggest that there might be room for a deal. On the other side, the cause for pessimism is that his is a very different case to Chung Lei's. You know, he used to work inside the Chinese system. Uh, he is, I think, probably seen by China as more one of them. He didn't grow up in Australia like Chung Lei did. And so there are greater sensitivities that might see the Chinese even more reluctant to do a deal or perhaps to seek an even higher price from Australia that we might be unwilling to pay. So, uh, it, again, it's, it's a very tricky case. But if you had asked me a month ago about Chung Lei, I would have said, you know, I was more pessimistic than optimistic and through some fantastic diplomacy from the Australian side and, I guess, an interest in both governments to do a deal, we've seen her release. So I think we couldn't give up just yet. The um, former Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has warned that this visit could be used as propaganda by China. Is that a concern? Nothing is without trade-offs in the world of diplomacy. It is in Australia's interest to stabilise relations, try to restore economic ties, but also there are many other policy areas where there are gains to be had from cooperating, for example, in climate change and green technology. How such a visit is portrayed in state media or used by the government for its own political agenda is really beyond our control and probably wouldn't isn't enough to justify a refusal to engage. So yes, it might have a propaganda element to it, but from our side, it is in the national interest, at least that's my view, that we try to engage with China, at least on our terms and in ways that are in our interest, and so therefore we wear that cost. We've talked a lot about what Australia might get out of this meeting, but but what does China get out of it? I mean, as a huge superpower, how much does it really need good relations with Australia? My assessment of Chinese foreign policy is that they've really been on the back foot since the Ukraine invasion by Russia. Xi Jinping backed his friend Vladimir Putin, but I think they were a bit surprised at how unifying this invasion was amongst the European and Western countries. Really, there was a good guy and a bad guy. And because China was seen as siding with the bad guy, there was a much more sort of hostile, suspicious perception of Beijing. And so we're all familiar with the wolf warrior diplomacy from Chinese diplomats in recent years. But since the Ukraine invasion, that's really been toned down. Meanwhile, you've got a lot of significant internal challenges in China. You've got economic challenges, you've got demographic challenges. And so my best guess is that the Chinese are looking to create a friendlier, less hostile external environment 
and are willing to give some concessions, for example, simply talking and engaging in order to relieve some of that pressure so that they can focus on problems at home. And so Australia, like any other country, is one with which they have major interests. And so trying to stabilise, to use Penny Wong's term, the relationship is much more in their interest than it was, say, before the invasion of Ukraine. This visit also comes just weeks after the Prime Minister met with Joe Biden in the US. Mm -hmm. How does Australia manage that relationship with those two superpowers at a time of fierce competition? Yes, well, this came up directly when Albanese was in Washington. He was asked whether he endorsed a phrase that Joe Biden had used of extreme competition with China. Meanwhile, Joe Biden was asked whether he thought that Australia could trust or should trust China. And both of them, I think, navigated their responses to that pretty well, basically, I think, because both governments are on the same page. They both want to improve relations with China, but on their terms without giving up too much. The US talks about setting up guardrails on the relationship with China so that it doesn't deteriorate too far. And we saw Washington send five or six senior officials in succession to Beijing without China sending one in return, at least until last week. And so they've really made an effort to resume dialogue. And because the Biden administration is interested and openly engaging with China, that's really made things even easier for the Australian government to do likewise. So I think on the need to continue talking, to continue engaging, the two governments are very much on the same page. Yet some of the things we saw announced, things around critical minerals or hacking, those kinds of issues, Mm -hmm. no one was necessarily naming China, but it felt like that was a factor there. I mean, are you hopeful that we are headed into a period of greater stability with China? Yes, a very complicated question. Look, the critical minerals announcements are part of what is now called de-risking, which is the idea that there are certain economic connections that the West shares with China, which have become an unacceptable source of security risk. The US has been very forthright about this. You know, Most famously, they've imposed pretty strict uh, technology export controls on semiconductors. And the Chinese don't like it, but the US has been quite clear about what they're doing and why. And Australia has been equally clear that they support efforts to de-risk in these sensitive technology areas. But the Australian government and indeed the US government have also said that the bulk of the economic linkages between the two countries remain, you know, open for business and they want to continue those. So I think the risk of war in the short term, if we're going to be that pessimistic, is is reduced. I'm optimistic that this engagement phase has some ballast to it. I'm pessimistic, though, because underlying the relationship are deep conflicts of interest. The two sides want different things. And domestic politics on both sides is always unpredictable. For example, if we see another President Trump uh, coming in 2025, then you know all bets are off at that point. Dr Darren Lim from ANU, he's also the host of the Australia in the World podcast. And that's our episode for the week. Subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. The show is produced by Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, Madeline Jenner. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.